1: Given that the night sky is just as important, potentially, as the mountains are to so your construction of your sense of that place, it then makes the, the preservation of the dark skies easier because it makes it something worth fighting for.
0: Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachia. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR shaping our Appalachian region if you're a entrepreneur out there especially in eastern Kentucky check them out Appalachian meets world we're back another week it's Will and hey, Neil what's Will. up my man what's going on down there yeah just trying to keep it together man had a big weekend big uh celebration KMLF I know everybody was happy to see us <laughs> KMLF always a good time I was able to make it down this year Wheels in town it's a party right what, what's what's up with you made it back <laughs> quick turnaround last week of school it's that time of year when everybody's getting out of school and the uh, schools try to cram every activity into that last couple of days yes I'm <laughs> it's a daunting task that last week yeah I gotta commend the teachers overwhelming for even me yeah for sure I understand. I feel your pain. You got some app app news for me? A little bit All has right. happened since our last episode. Opportunity Appalachia. I know we've had Miss Donna Gambrell on here from Opportunity Appalachia. From One of my Appalachia. favorites. But they had their Appalachian Investor convening this week. Actually, they had it on Wednesday and Thursday where they showed – cased the 33 job creation projects. Had a lot of background information, had a lot of good speakers. I'm sure they have it recorded. If you want to check it out, we'll post it. A couple of reports came out this week, Reclaiming Appalachia Coalition report showing mine clean land can boost local communities. So the report's called National to Neighborhoods, Catalyzing Opportunity for Coal Impacted Communities, but really highlights a lot of the past work that has been done on those mine cleanup land and as well as future opportunities. So we'll post that report. Invest Appalachia came out with their report stating that central Appalachia is well positioned to gain population as a result of climate change and also to spur economic revitalization in distressed communities. So we'll post that report. Uh, A couple of things, there was a story that came out. The USDA announced some finalists for 12 new regional food business centers and a $420 million investment in supply chain funding for small farms. And one of those centers in Appalachia is going to be headed by Rural Action. We've spoken about Rural Action on here before. Rural Action is out of Southeast Ohio. The last thing I want to mention is a story that I saw on the American chestnut tree remember having a chestnut tree in our front yard sure do man wonder if people still have those (laughs) well that's a very good question because this chestnut story is all about chestnut trees American chestnuts in Appalachia of how they were abundant back in the day and now how they have dwindled down to almost nothing and there is a group some individuals that are trying to bring them back. Susan Thompson from Shepherd University. She's part of a group. They're combining the American chestnut with the Chinese variant, which is a little bit more sturdy to try to bring them back to Appalachia. I just remember how painful they are when you step on them in your front yard. Literally, we had one in our front yard. Yeah, it was painful, especially when you were the little brother because – The big brother just threw them at you. (laughs) That's true. I don't know if you remember that part, but I do. I remember. remember. That was the fun part. Yeah, I bet it was. Played dodgeball. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I wasn't very good at dodgeball. No, you weren't. Not at that age. (laughs) That, That was really all I had. We'll post that story. I think it's a cool story. So, how are your uh, summer evenings going? I wanted to ask you, man, how you celebrated your Memorial Day. Uh, Well, I just kind of took it easy. Uh, To be honest, it was a a rare day that we didn't have a lot of events going on. So, I cooked some Japanese for the fam. Japanese Memorial Day. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. (laughs) You know, my hibachi, I call it Japanese. You know, I'm quite the hibachi cook, so you know, had the fam over, except you. Uh, that's what we did. And then we just kind of uh, hung out for a bit. Like a nice Memorial Day. You know, we always spend Memorial Day at the Kentucky Mountain Law Festival. It kind of blends into that actual Monday of Memorial Day of why we celebrate to honor the fallen soldiers, which mm-hmm. sometimes it's forgotten about until that actual day. But yeah. I never really knew how, when it started. It started back in 1868 at the tail end of the Civil War when John Logan of the Grand Army of the Republic declared the day to honor Union fallen Union soldiers. Back in the day, it used to be called Decoration Day. I don't know if you know that song by the drive-by truckers. That's what I think of when I hear Decoration Day. Yeah. In 1971, it was changed officially to Memorial Day. But for me, it's kind of like that start of summer. Yeah, I mean, it is. But at the same time, it is uh, definitely a day that we we stop and pause and remember those soldiers that have laid down their lives so that we could have freedom. So Yeah, definitely. I feel like Memorial Day is the start of summer to me and cutting into a watermelon on a hot day. Those are two things that I symbolize with it started in summer. Maybe it's a for you. I don't know. I just like to just randomly go lay in my nice fresh cut thick grass and stare up at the stars in the brisk of summer. You don't get that everywhere. What some people refer to as dark skies. You know, with all the light pollution we have these days, some of those dark skies are disappearing. That's something you don't get, I guess. I mean. I still have a quite a bit of beauty down here in Appalachia. I feel like as a little kid growing up, I don't know if you remember like I feel like there was a lot more lightning bugs. I feel like there were a lot more stars. maybe I'm maybe I'm just wrong. I feel like I have a lot of lightning bugs in the in the heat of the summer. maybe not so much right now, but uh, as we as we get a little further along into the summer, it gets pretty pretty, pretty cool down here in uh, my neck of the woods. I'm not an astronomist, Will. I mean, I don't have the perfect answer when it comes to stargazing. I do know there are experts out there. Which is what we're having on the show tonight. Dr. Jeff Berry, who likes to call himself the hillbilly astrophysicist, originally from Welch, West Virginia, and now is a professor at Colgate University. We've been talking about tourism the last couple of episodes, and with dark skies, it's that unique tourism opportunity for some locations. A lot of people are attracted to dark skies. I just want to mention four of the hot spots in the Appalachian Mountains for dark skies. One we've talked about on here before, the Cherry Springs State Park in Pennsylvania is kind of the mecca for dark skies and stargazing. A couple mm-hmm. of others, Pickett Pogue State Park and Natural Area in Jamestown, Tennessee. Blue Ridge Star Park and Observatory in Spruce Pine, North Carolina, and Stanton River State Park in Scottsburg, Virginia. There were, those are four of stargazing hotspots. So I say we just get Dr. Barry on here to talk about it a little more and talk about those dark skies and those unique tourism opportunities in Appalachia.
2: Yeah, man, let's do it. It's Decoration Day. And i would a mind to roll a stone on his grave. What would he say? Keeping me down, boy, won't keep you away. It's decoration day. And I knew the hill boys had put him away. But my daddy wasn't afraid. He said we'd fight till the last loss and his last living day. I knew
0: on the show today, we have Dr. Jeff Perry. Do you mind if I call you Jeff?
1: No, please. I prefer it. <laughs>
0: he is a native of Welsh, Virgin- West Virginia in McDowell County. He's a proud Appalachian and currently a Sweet family chair and associate professor of physics at Colgate University. His work focuses on how planets and stars form and evolve. With his background and upbringing, he also teaches a course about the history of the labor movement and the fight for social and environmental justice in the southern coal fields of West Virginia. I also wanted to mention that he's a self proclaimed or the hillbilly astrophysicist. <laughs> but really, why we wanted to have him on the show today. He recently uh, was awarded an endowed chair to support work in regards to dark skies to bring scholars together to explore the role of dark skies that they play in the construction of Appalachian identity and sense of place. So, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time today.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to do this.
0: I I don't know this, but it seems like you always, maybe appreciative is not the right word, but you always take advantage of talking about your upbringing, talking about where you're from, that being Appalachia.
1: Yeah, you know, and and I got to say that hasn't always been the case. You know, uh, when you get into academia especially as a kid from, from the sticks, you know, in Appalachia, like, like where I'm from with as thick of an accent as I had, and I, I still have an accent, but man, it's not what it once was. I, you kind of hide that part of yourself because of the stereotype that's associated with, with being from, from Appalachia. And, you know, the, the whole thing with the hillbilly astrophysicist, it's, it's trying to turn that idea of the hillbilly on its, on its head.
0: I like it. We're definitely going to get into that. But I wanted to ask you a question just to kick it off. Question that we ask everybody, like Appalachians are big on history, big on tradition. Neil and I, our family, we're big on tradition as well. And one of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. We usually have this gigantic spread of appetizers that are bigger than the actual meal. So we wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish?
1: Yeah, that, that's a really good question. I, I don't know if this really fits into the appetizer thing, but uh, and this is particular for us to Thanksgiving, uh, but my mom would always make oyster dressing.
0: Oh. And,
1: and the dressing, she would have to make like extra, so she'd stuff the bird, but then uh, we also had another pan, maybe two, of oyster dressing, and and, and that would get eaten before just about anything else. Nice. Once it came out of the oven, we were sort of hovering around eating the oyster dressing.
0: Coming from West Virginia, was it canned oysters? Is sure. That- <laughs> yeah, <Right>. sure. <laughs> now you can get yeah. oysters delivered, you know, like from everywhere
1: in the next yeah. day. But <laughs> Yeah, no, they came They came in those little plastic. Uh, <laughs> <afterwards>. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a food desert in a lot of ways um, <laughs> yeah. where we were. So, uh, but, but nonetheless... That was a delicacy for for us and something we always look forward to at Thanksgiving.
0: Well, uh, just to back up a little bit, maybe you could let our listeners know a bit about your, you you mentioned kind of where you're from and I did in the intro, but a bit about your background, what led you into astronomy and maybe your work?
1: That could be a long story. I'll try and make it, I'll make it kind of short. You know, I got interested in astronomy as a pretty young kid and it kind of started with a book uh, that I got in the third grade and you know how they used to have those book fairs in, in elementary school It'd be yeah. a decade they'd have all these books lined you know laid out and you could go and and buy some books and um, there was this little book that had a picture of the Horsehead Nebula on it and the title of the book was uh, what's up there and I managed to get my hands on that book even though one of my friends bought it actually. <laughs> and he never got it back. And that book sparked my interest and I read it many, many times. And that led to other books and and then led to, to me just developing a real interest and love of astronomy. And, and The Night Sky was part of it, but but books were probably even a bigger part of it for me.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. I've always heard that it only takes one teacher or maybe even one book to strike an interest, but also to give kids opportunity And opportunity is a big deal, you know, where we're from.
1: Yeah. You know, and it didn't hurt that my dad was a middle school science teacher, even though he's a biologist by training uh, and I was interested in more of the physical, uh, physical sciences, physics and and astronomy. uh, He still did a lot to kind of cultivate that interest that I was I was showing at a young age. You know, luckily I was pretty good at math. Math kind of came somewhat naturally for me, although now I realize math is really hard <laughs> when, <laughs> yeah. when you get to really challenging uh, uh, problems and stuff. With my dad and me having the, a slight kind of like knack for it, uh, really went a long way.
0: Very neat, very neat. And it's taken you to become really one of the prominent scholars in your field.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's a little generous, but I'm still working at it, right? Uh, which means that I'm doing something right.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I mentioned in the intro, why we really wanted to have you on today. I, I, when we met at ALI, you, you spoke about dark skies and how dark skies can play a role, not only in attracting people to a certain place, but really shaping identity, forming uh, that sense of place. But I wanted to, to maybe just ask you, let the listeners know, what are dark skies and what is the significance of light pollution?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I was hoping we would we would define it for folks because I have these conversations now fairly regularly and I, I realize that not everybody thinks about the night sky. Of course they don't. Not everybody, not everybody grew up like I did interested <laughs> in, in astronomy. But a dark sky is a sky that where the the space between the stars is pretty black i mean that's what we're that's what you're after and, and the darker that space is the the fainter the objects you're going to be able to see and so in the, in north america and europe now large percentages i think i think the number is at least 80% in north america 60% in europe uh, those people that number of people or percentage of people live in places where they can't see the milky way if you're in a place where you don't have a lot of artificial light at night it should be fairly easy to see the mil- Milky Way. And the reason that you can't see the Milky Way in those places, and maybe even some of the brighter stars is because of artificial light. And uh, artificial light, which helps us see at night, if there's a lot of it, and especially a lot of it that uh, like in the colors of the, of the rainbow that are on the bluer side, uh, those are gonna scatter and those photons are just going to end up causing um, the sky to be illuminated. And so if you've ever been near Uh, a city and you really pay attention you can see this this light dome like not if you're standing directly in the city but if you're just a little bit outside and you're looking towards the city you can see a dome of light that just kind of encompasses the city and and that dome of light is this sort of diffuse glow that would then create a background uh, against which you won't be able to see the stars or or the milky way and so when we talk about dark skies, we're talking about a place where you don't have that artificial light, where you can actually see the Milky Way, where you can see faint stars and and fuzzy objects pretty easily.
0: and that's that's becoming um strikingly less and less um, as we develop. You know, we typically associate darkness with uh, low lower economic development, you know, that we always need to urbanize. We always need to industrialize. We always need to install more lighting for growth. However, you know, not all development is a good thing, as I think the dark skies demonstrate. As we where we're from in central Appalachia, as we've transitioned from coal, we've identified other industries such as tourism. Can you just talk about how dark skies can be this creative solution to really attractive tourism?
1: Yeah, well, it it in and of itself could attract people because as as the, uh, well, what's what's been happening over the last 15 years, um, as we switch from one type of lighting, which were the old incandescent bulbs that we figured out were really inefficient right, because they produced so much of their uh, radiation or what they emitted was radiation that wasn't even visible light that we could use to see, right? It was infrared radiation that doesn't help you see at all, but it's still sucking energy and electricity um, uh, from your generators and stuff. so, so, what we've been doing recently is switching over to uh, light emitting diodes or LEDs, and LEDs are super efficient. But what that efficiency has done is it's allowed for folks to say, "Oh well, I can you still use less energy, but I can make my lights brighter, or I could have more lights and still use less energy. And so, What's been happening, I think, with, with smaller municipalities as they are doing this transition to LEDs to save electricity, to affect climate change, because you don't have to burn as much fossil fuels to power your, your cities. Because So in that sense, it's really the right thing to do. They've been moving towards brighter lights or more lights. And so our towns are becoming more luminous, which is exacerbating the sky brightness problem and is encroaching so the places that may have used to have had fairly dark skies those are now being illuminated because little towns are even starting to put out more and more light so we're seeing uh, light pollution become a problem even in in what would have typically been thought of as rural areas.
0: I saw a quote that you had you mentioned that dark skies have always been and continue to be a fundamental aspect of Appalachia one as important to the local population as the hills trees, rivers, coal seams, coal miners, and mountain music. Um, <laughs> I thought that was an excellent quote, but according to the International Dark Skies Association, which actually certifies dark sky areas, there're really only, I counted four, five, six, seven dark skies certified areas in Appalachia, two being in Tennessee, two in North Carolina. One in West Virginia, one in Virginia and one in Pennsylvania, that being Cherry Springs, which is actually recognized as one of the meccas of dark skies. It's the gold. It's been certified gold level by IDA or the International Dark Sky Association. Is that because a lot of places just didn't know that they could certify as a dark skies, that there are more dark skies than we know of? Or that's really the only areas that you can really see the stars in the Milky Way, and no,
1: no. so there's definitely more than than that, right? Um, <laughs> it's a process to get the IDA to come in and give you that designation, and that takes that takes a lot of organization from the people in the community to really achieve one of those uh, designations. So, so that's not saying that those are the only places; those are the only places that IDA has recognized. And part of that recognition requires um, the locality. Or municipality, or whatever whatever entity is that's going to be designated, to put in uh, a, a lighting ordinance that would then preserve, help preserve the the, uh, the skies. And in addition to that, they ask that they have some outreach uh, programs and activities uh, associated with with the park or whatever is going to be designated. So. Yeah. There are a couple little uh, obstacles or little hoops that you have to jump through before the IDA will give a a place a designation. So that's that's really one of the limiting factors for places being. being we,
0: We had the PA Wilds on a previous episode, and that's where Cherry Springs is. And they talk about it being a marketing tool, really a destination for tourists to come see the dark skies there in Cherry Springs.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so the folks that really invited me down to Abingdon for the ALI Institute, uh, Tim Izzell and and Kat Wilt at UT Knoxville, they've been working with a group in Calhoun County, uh, West Virginia, and Calhoun County Park has an exceptionally dark sky. The dark, the sky there is easy enough to achieve the International Dark Sky Association designation. Uh, it's just a matter of justifying it taking measurements, which I've taken some and, and clearly illustrated to myself that, that the sky is dark okay. enough. And, and then it's a matter of putting in some of these ideas for outreach activities, and then thinking about how the local town, say Grantsville, uh, moves forward with the way it, it does its lighting. Very cool. Um,
0: so you have to work with the municipality, you have to work with the residents to keep their light in check really uh, to reduce the amount of illumination that they have in the town.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, it's true. So you come up with an ordinance, which which really would be about like how bright the lights you could use, what color the light should be. Sometimes it would be like, could you have the lights uh, on a motion sensor or something so they're not on all night? And then just making sure that the lights are shielded, right? That they're never pointed up into the sky and that they're shielded so that the light uh, is actually directed down towards the ground where it is actually needed. You know, so uh, it, it, there. So you'd have a little ordinance that would have some of those little stipulations in it, and then the other part would be like enforcing the ordinances so uh, yeah. so that you don't have people abusing the. The system or, or shining a really powerful lights up into the sky. Can we maybe
0: talk about the work that I mentioned in the intro in regards to dark skies, the identity of Appalachia, the sense of place? You know, I've heard you talk about this disconnection from place um, when we are disconnected from the night sky. Can you maybe talk about that a little bit, uh, how that came to be and, and what you're going to be doing with your work going forward?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I, I guess I started really thinking about this and, and I maybe it initially comes from a personal experience, but it's also was my thinking about how do I convince people to want to protect the skies, right? To, to, to keep the skies dark, even, even when you start putting up lights, why, why is it that when you do put up new lights that you should think about putting up lights that are responsible and protect, protect the sky, even though they still light up, you know, whatever you need to be, need to have illuminated. I was thinking that it's easier to convince people to, to make slight little changes or to do sometimes what, you know, what I'm trying to tell them is the right thing to do when they see them, they see their own investment in it. You know, and and for me, if people start to identify themselves, if those, those in Appalachia where we do have lots of dark sky sites, right, there's like Appalachia, like, I showed you all that image that showed like this really dark spot in West Virginia, (laughs) this really dark spot in in Pennsylvania, and then you could go all the way up to Adirondack Park and and see some, some dark skies. Convincing people that in those places that that sky that they currently have is worth preserving and protecting, I think can come down to convincing them that you know what, you value that because it's part of your culture, right? It's part of something that you grew up with, whether you are conscious of it or not, uh, I'm here to help you become conscious of it and recognize that your sense of this place, this place that in Appalachia, of course, we are all, those of us who have moved away, have all discovered that there was a really serious a serious connection to home. Given that the night sky is just as important potentially as the mountains are to your construction of your sense of, of that place, it then makes the the preservation of the dark skies easier because it makes it something worth fighting for. So in terms of like the research and scholarship that I'm wanting to do, I'm wanting to to kind of explore different kind of creative things like literary criticism, like books and stuff and how Appalachian based writers may actually write about the sky, how musicians and songwriters might write about the sky in, in, in their lyrics, how artists might represent the sky in their paintings or sculpture or anything like that how filmmakers might represent the sky, all of those different sort of artistic expressions of the sky from people that are somehow connected to this place. I want to kind of explore that so we can get a sense of, of how dark skies have affected people's sense of place and then how that sense of places is, is uh, influences their, their art.
0: Yeah. It, it really struck me when you, when you spoke about that, we ground our podcast on place and perspective places is- it's really important to to Neil and I, it's really important to Appalachia. It's like a, a character in and to itself. And having that connection to place, uh, the importance of the sky and the dark sky, and like you like you mentioned, home, I think is really appealing and, and important to the people of Appalachia.
1: Yeah, I have a radio show here at Colgate, and occasionally we'll have some music- musicians in, and I'll get a chance to interview them on, on my radio show. And I had some friends, Doug and Talisha Williams, who have this uh, uh, band called Wild Ponies. They're, they're in Nashville now, but they're originally from Martinsville. I asked them, I was like, so, you know, typically people ask about, oh, who are your influences in your, in your writing and stuff? I asked them, like, how did the place that you grow up, how did Appalachia influence your writing? And bam, they they were all over it because they're like, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a character. Just like you say, right? It's a character for a yeah. lot. Something we we uh, we feel and sense a presence of, whether we're there or or no longer there, really. So
0: I did also want to ask you about a, com- a convocation speech that you gave not mm-hmm. too long ago about uh, really being a seeker and overcoming stereotypes. Uh, Neil and I, I think, carry a chip on our shoulder when we're outside the region, just because we know how we're represented. We know how. We know how we are perceived when we leave Appalachia. Uh, can you speak to maybe your perspective of, you know, coming from McDowell to becoming, like I mentioned, a prominent, prominent scientist in your field and how that perspective, how you have maybe, you, you touched on it in the beginning, but maybe overcome the stereotypes and, and maybe also talk about, we talk about it all the time on the show, doers. But I think your reference to seekers may be somewhat similar. Can you can you just touch on that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So uh, you really did your research. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, I spent a lot of time on that speech uh, for the convocation. You know, it's like all the first years are here. It's like 800 people packed into the chapel. To- I just
0: love that you're there at Colgate University talking about McDowell County, West Virginia. I thought that was just awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it it was fun to do. And, you know, when I was thinking about what I would talk about, that was kind of the obvious, the obvious thing. But for me, it was uh, one of the things I wanted to do was connect to other students who may have been sitting in the audience, right, who had that same sort of stereotype threat, which is kind of, I think, what the sociologist term is for it, right, is that you are a member of a group that has been stereotyped. And for us, you know, we're just these these dumb hillbillies and we're never quite gonna measure up to what other people outside of the region uh, are, are gonna do. And, and I certainly internalized that as a kid, right? I knew that I was up against something. There was always going to be a, a fight that I was gonna have to, to tackle. Uh, and part of that was that stereotype and overcoming what people were going to, to expect of me. Uh, based upon that stereotype. And so part of that speech was about just reaching out to those other kids who, who might not have Appalachia as that stereotypical thing, but, but, you know, maybe from an underrepresented group or, or, or from another country or something, and they have some sort of stereotype associated with them. And I wanted to let them know that they should just forget the stereotype that they belong here, you know, just like I feel now that I belong here. uh, And, And get on with it, (laughs) you know, that's pretty much that's pretty much what my what my message was. So in terms of the seeker, uh, you know, I was basing that off of a a faculty member that had been here at Colgate, a much loved faculty member, Coleman Brown, who this residential commons uh, was named after that I was directing at the time. And I particularly focused in on the seeker out of the seekers, believers and doubters was this phrase that he used to use a lot. And he would say that in any group that he spoke to, and he was a, a minister, there were always the seekers, the believers, and the doubters. And he wanted to kind of speak to all three of those different groups. And of course, I focused, I kind of focused on the seekers because I wanted these incoming students to, to really take advantage of all the opportunities that they have here and seek them out, you know. And But then I also connected connected that notion of being a seeker as to having some sort of ethical ethical center, right, and compass that kind of directed the the, the things that you choose to do um, as a student as well, so.
0: Yeah, I thought that was great, and like we talked about before we, we started, you know, just having that opportunities or having those opportunities presented to you, you need to take advantage of all the opportunities you, you can, because not everyone have those opportunities, especially where we're from. Do you think leaving the region, made you appreciate the region more i know we spoke about a little bit a lot of the things that i've learned through this show i was never taught in school but leaving the region has really made me identify as an appalachian even more and made me uh, better appreciate where i'm from have you found that to be the same
1: yeah yeah i think i think you've seen that probably in some of in some of my writing if you've read that blog (laughs) and stuff it's uh it, it really has. and and maybe even more so once I got into this position at Colgate um, and had a chance to really reflect on on my place in the world and kind of got a little bit older and and didn't have to focus, you know, I, I was able to uh, let some of my other peripheral interests hobbies and stuff kind of come to the fore and not be so focused just on my astrophysical research, right? and and that's when I really started to to maybe read more about the region. Uh, And then, you know, I was actually, so I was teaching this class about Galileo. This is one of the things that really sparked me back into into getting involved in the Appalachian Studies Association and then eventually wanting to teach a course about Appalachia, was I was teaching this class about Galileo and the church. One of the Colgate alumni wrote a book called Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt. His name's Chris Hedges. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist from the New York Times. And I got the book and the third chapter, uh, which was about um, one of the four sacrifice zones the book focuses on. Third chapter was was based in Welch, West Virginia.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I was like, well, shoot, we need to have Chris come to, to campus. And I was like, well, you know, the uh, labor movement. And like the environmental justice movement that was happening in Appalachia was, was like individuals or at least small groups of people who were standing up against a very powerful industry or a very uh, powerful organization. And I was comparing that to, to say Galileo, who was this individual at the time who was standing up against a, a really powerful entity in the, in the Catholic church at the time. And so I made this little parallel and I brought Chris to campus and, and he spoke uh, with my class and gave, a, gave like a public lecture. And over dinner with him and a bunch of my colleagues one night, we were having this conversation about Appalachia. I started pursuing things and ended up having a whole series of uh, talks and things about Appalachia like the following year. Uh, and then I started attending the Appalachian Studies Association meeting. Uh, I met Tim and Kat who were doing the dark sky preservation work in Calhoun County and was like, can I get involved with you all? And then you know, five or six years later in 2021, I taught this Appalachian course uh, for the first time. That,
0: that is so great. The, the The Appalachian diaspora is so rich. There's so many people out there that you that you know we we don't know about um, that. And I love how you're spreading the Appalachian gospel. How you're being this evangelist for Appalachia, even at Colgate. And that's why part of why we have this podcast. People need to understand from Appalachian's point of view. All about Appalachia. You know what I mean? Yeah, um,
1: yeah. You know, and and so the thing that that you know, I, I try not to do, but it's really easy to do, is to romanticize the region. I have this romantic kind of take on there it. There are
0: challenges, so,
1: yeah, right. Uh, I I want to make sure that people see how special the place is, and then also how not so different it is, right? Because it's it's portrayed as this like backwards place. But but what I've learned so much by doing this, and if I, if I really don't fall into this whole sort of romanticization of the place, what we really learn is that Appalachia is not that much different than anywhere else, even though the representation of it makes you think like it's it's really so different than every, everywhere else. It's not. The people yeah. that are just as capable as people from anywhere else of doing just about anything they want to do.
0: Yeah, if we've said it once, we've said it a million times on this show. Really, while we named it Appalachia Meets World, we wanted to get s- outside of Appalachia into other regions. And what we've learned is that other regions are have far more similarities with Appalachia than they do differences. Like we are much more similar than we are different.
1: Yeah. And yet I think we're pretty special. When I go home and, and especially when I was heading back into McDowell County, I would drive all the way down I81. And then I would uh, cut across on sixty four out of Lexington, Virginia, and I tell you, I would hit the mountains, and and you know, I just kind of choke up when you see the mountains just kind of rising up and in, into the sky. You know, it's it's just one of those it's one of those things that I could not explain, and and it just kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, but I had that I had that experience and I was like, yeah, those those are my mountains. And they were so different than the whole terrain that I'd been driving for whatever, seven hours to get to get to them.
0: Even those mountains, like um, it, if we're getting back to dark skies, n- not only with tourism, but it plays an important role in regards to conservation and in regards to protecting the ecosystem of Appalachia.
1: Yeah, you know, it's so so where I grew up was right uh, in the, the Tug River Valley, the Tug Fork uh, River Valley, and the tug the tug runs all the way down to Matewan, and and runs through Welch too. So it connects, you know, so two really very important towns. If you go back into the the history of the mine wars and stuff, uh, but the special thing about that valley is it is so deep that the mountains are just on top of each other, and so when I would look up at night and 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 look at the sky, I did not really see very much sky. Right, it was just like this little narrow little sliver of sky. And so that can help actually in terms of like helping preserve sort of uh, dark skies, because there's not a whole lot of places to develop to the point where you might yeah. have a whole lot of uh, um, light pollution. Yeah. So, so you want to, you know, maybe it's an easier place to to preserve dark skies being in, in Appalachia than other places, but it's also uh, an exceedingly beautiful place to do that as well. And so people can come, enjoy the skies at night, but then they can also enjoy hiking through the mountains during the day.
0: You know, you mentioned your radio show, which I failed to mention in the intro, but it's called From the Skies to the Stars, which is a weekly radio show that you host featuring Americana, folk, bluegrass, old-time music. Did where you grew up, Appalachia, shape your musical
1: interests? This is a good question. Not in terms of what they are, what my musical interests are today. It's really kind of funny. Because my parents didn't like bluegrass music. My grandfather liked country music, but we didn't listen to a whole lot of of, of traditional country music growing up. And you know, my high school, we listened to a lot of uh, hip hop and and R and B at the time, uh, and not really much else. So it wasn't until I got into graduate school at Vanderbilt and was in Nashville, and I started going to this little place called the Station Inn, and, and God Man. bless. Yeah, yeah it's still awesome. there yeah. <laughs> you know it's still there it's in the gulch and when i was there the gulch was was really the station in and maybe a couple other buildings and that was yeah, awesome. the place to go i know i know so so i developed uh my love of of kind of uh of country music and americana and bluegrass pretty much going to the station in roberts western world downtown on, on lower cool. broadway uh, cool. in nashville as a, as a grad student and and I, I've, I hated to leave Nashville, partly because of that music scene that I had I'd, uh, come to come to enjoy probably a couple times a week or something like that. Very cool. Well, who's who's
0: your favorite artist?
1: <laughs> um, I don't know. It's kind of hard to say. I, when I was in Nashville, I listened to Daryl Scott constantly. You know, he's a Kentucky. He's a you know Kentucky. where he was born. Where's he from? London or something like that?
0: In Kentucky, which is where Neil lives. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of Daryl Scott, then, if he's one of your favorite artists, what is your favorite version of You'll Never Leave Harlan Alive? Is it Daryl Scott? Is it Patti Loveless, Brad Paisley, Kathy Matea? I don't know if you recently saw Patti Loveless and Chris Stapleton. They brought the house down at the CMA.
1: Oh, right. Yeah, I did see that. Because well, Daryl was on stage with them.
0: Yeah, yeah, playing yeah. the banjo, I think.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, it doesn't get any better than Daryl Scott.
0: Yeah, <laughs> the original is always the best,
1: right? The original the is clearly the best. Well, uh, I think so. Another person that I really uh, am fond of these days is, well, I'll tell you too, so I can get a little bit of diversity of folks. Tyler Childers uh, blows me away. You know, uh, his vocals and his songwriting and stuff absolutely blows me away. And then in East Tennessee, Amethyst Kia. I don't know if you've come across Amethyst Kia yet. No, no. Man, we've had her up here to school a couple times now, and she she's incredible. She was part of uh, our native daughters with Rhiannon Giddens. Uh, okay, a lot of
0: chocolate drops.
1: Yeah, yeah. And Rhiannon Giddens, I think, is one of the most talented human beings walking the planet at the moment. Yeah, she's awesome. she can do everything. So Amethyst kind of got some visibility from that. And now Amethyst, I think she's been touring and, and has been opening for Jason Isbell uh, and folks. Cool. So if you haven't come across her, she's she's something.
0: Two questions that we ask everyone. One of those questions being, what's the, what's the first thing you think of when I say the word Appalachia?
1: I, you know, I think about those mountains and, and the people, the community uh, of people that I grew up in. <clears> That's <throat> a really important part of, of Appalachia. You get in these little, little, small communities, and and um, it's pretty tight knit. People not only know each other; they do things for each other. It's a community that I haven't really experienced anywhere else.
0: Yeah, I've said that before too, and it's always it's always nice to hear people's perspective. You know, we ask that question of people that are from Appalachia or not from Appalachia. Everyone has their own perspective. Of, you know what they think of when they hear the word. But yeah, I, I've lived in a lot of places and I've, I've never, never really found that community that I had when I was living in Appalachia. But the other question that we ask everyone, like I mentioned before, place and perspective is really important to us. Uh, that being said, just where do you call home? What makes it home for you? What makes it unique?
1: Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> same thing people ask me, they, well, they hear my accent, probably. <laughs> they might ask me where I'm from or something like that. And I kind of tell them, I'm like, well, you know, I'm from West Virginia. I may live here now in Hamilton, New York. But uh, but home, I think, is always going to be McDowell County, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know if another place will ever kind of feel the same the same way. Uh, and then one of the things that, that I, I think it's difficult to kind of teach teach my students you know like what makes Appalachia and I'm like well there's there's the geological sort of (laughs) definition uh, of the mountain range but then there's a geographical definition that comes from the Appalachian Regional Commission yeah you know and and another thing I think that if folks are listening should know about parts of Appalachia especially like the the regions where the most coal has been mined that uh, the majority of the land is not owned by people Right. The the majority of the land is owned by these uh, timber and mineral uh, resource companies, and they often get a pretty sweetheart deal on like the tax tax structure. So they can just sit on that land forever. And so when it comes to like developing new industries in in that region, those mineral companies kind of had a stranglehold on the region because they wouldn't they didn't have to allow other industry to develop.
0: Is there anywhere where people can go and find out more information about your research, about your work, or some of the things that we talked about today?
1: Yeah, so in particular, I have started um, a website where I hope to gather all of sort of the scholarly interests that we come up with, just not myself, but also scholars and and, and creators and practitioners from the region, uh, where we start to identify these places where we see the influence of Dark Skies. Uh, in people's work, right? Creative work. So uh, I'll share that link with you. I, it's some strange like J. Berry domain at Colgate sure. or something. Yeah, yeah. If you share that with people so they can kind of uh, track our progress, uh, we're hoping to have a symposium here at Colgate in the spring of next year and invite uh, scholars and musicians and filmmakers and, and folks with an interest in this uh, up here to to kind of share their work with one another and uh, and and we'll we'll document that with the website. And I hope I mean my goal with that is that uh, we'll produce an edited volume that's a, a multimedia edited volume that will have some of the music and maybe photography and artwork and stuff in addition to having scholarly papers presented on the on the stuff.
0: Very cool. Um, we'll definitely share that and people can check it out. Dr. Barry or Jeff, I wanted to thank you again for being on the show. Thank you for the time. Thank you. For the work that you're doing, not only as an astrophysicist, as an astronomer, but also as an Appalachian evangelist at Colgate and beyond. So, thank you.
1: Well, thanks for thanks for having me on. I I really enjoy your all's podcast, and and I appreciate the opportunity to to get on here and and proselytize not only about Appalachia, but also the importance of of keeping the skies dark. You know, even in the face of potential progress right we can hopefully we can have progress and not lose our connection to to the night sky because it's been something that people have experienced for thousands and thousands of years and it's been such an important part of culture and i would hate for this generation or these few generations to to be the ones that that lose it
0: very well said thanks (laughs) Man, what a fascinating episode with Dr. Barry. You can hear his passion for Appalachia, obviously. Growing up in Wells, Virginia, even like getting outside of his comfort zone when it comes to astronomy and teaching a course on Appalachia history, Appalachia heritage at Colgate. I thought that was pretty cool, not only for himself, but the students there to experience a little bit of Appalachia from a true Appalachian. Yeah, for sure. Anytime we can educate people about Appalachia, I'm all for it. And uh, I'm sure he's doing a fantastic job. Uh, I was totally educated during this episode, Will. One thing I did want to mention in regards to the Appalachian course, he sent us uh, music. You know, we talked about music in the episode. He sent us a playlist that he uses for that course. We'll post it. It's a Spotify Appalachian music playlist. If you're interested, you can check it out in the show notes. He also sent us a map of some of the brightest areas of the country and some of the darkest areas of the country. We'll try to post that in the show notes too. What do you think about dark skies, Neil? You think Appalachia has some of the darkest? Yeah. In my neck of the woods, it sure seems that way. Uh, it's a still a beautiful spectacle when you're laying in, in my front yard. I just wanna thank Dr. Barry for being on the show again. Will really appreciate his time and all of his knowledge on this episode. Uh, moving forward into the next segment of our show. Do you do you have an at biz of the week for me? At biz of the week. I wanted to mention it being month of May was National Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander Month. Just kind of wanted to Highlight of business in regards to that, there was something I saw or a show on Hawaiian culture, and they were talking about surfing and how it kind of originated in Hawaii. It dates back several centuries. I think it was actually talked about it being become really known in 1771 when Captain James Cook saw some Hawaiians and What we now refer to as Hawaii surfing on these long boards. The oldest surfboards are found in Hawaii. They just have that culture, uh, that ocean, ocean culture distinct to them. I wanted to mention that because in the story, they spoke to someone. They called him Padao He He's kind of surfing royalty there in Hawaii. They asked him about the, the surfing in the Hawaiian industry. It's technically a billion industry. And When they asked him how many Hawaiians are reaping the benefits from that $4 billion industry, his answer was none. He didn't think native Hawaiians were reaping any benefits from the westernized uh, industry that is surfing today. He talked about surfing, though, in the ocean, connecting the culture, bonding as the family. It's what they know. They referred to it as home. It just made me Think about uh, the extractive economy in central Appalachia and how a lot of Appalachians haven't reaped the benefits of a lot of the economies that have been taking out. It just showed the similarities in some of our cultures, some of our identities. I found it kind of interesting when I heard him say that in in that little piece. But moving on from (laughs) surfing, also what, what, what I wanted to highlight as, as the business, Asian American restaurant. It's called Sticky Rice Cafe in Knoxville, Tennessee. I wanted to mention it because I saw that the oldest Chinese restaurant. Where, where do you think it is? The oldest Chinese restaurant. The oldest Chinese restaurant in Appalachia or. In the U.S. Yeah. The oldest Chinese restaurant in America. Um, Florida. Florida. No, it's another mountainous region, mountainous culture of Butte, Montana.
1: Huh. Who would
0: have guessed? It's over 100 years old. This Chinese restaurant uh, moved there during, you know, the gold mining of Montana when the Chinese population was larger than New York City. And this small little uh, place in Montana just made me think about all the immigration that moved into the coal fields of Central Appalachia. And so the Peking Noodle Parlor in Butte, Montana, is still there and kicking. The oldest family-owned Chinese restaurant in America, over 100 years old. But I wanted to highlight, like I said, Sticky Rice Cafe in Knoxville, Tennessee, serves traditional Lao family recipes. It is a family-owned restaurant, has been for decades. Khan and her mother, Fett are originally from Laos. And when Khan was born during the Vietnam War, when it was ending, and the country was in turmoil, their their family had to leave. They originally went to Louisiana and then made their way to Knoxville in Appalachia, Tennessee. And this restaurant has been recognized in Bon Appetit as a must-stop in the Appalachian area. So I wanted to highlight it. You can check it out at StickyRiceKnox.com. That's what I had for App Biz of the Week. Sounds awesome. I'm going to check out Sticky Rice next time through Knoxville. And uh, maybe next time in Montana, I'll, I'll give a, give a shout-out to uh, the oldest Chinese restaurant in America. I know it's outside Appalachia, but we kind of highlighted it, too. But anyway, no, appreciate exactly. that. Like we always say on this on this episode, even though we're from different places, a lot of the time there are a lot more similarities than there are differences, especially in our cultures. You go from the Hawaiian surfing culture to Butte, Montana, gold mining to the central coal fields of Appalachia. Another great episode, my brother. Yeah, Let's I want to leave. thank Dr. Barry again for his time and all that he's doing there to spread the Appalachian gospel in here at Colgate. For sure, for sure. All right, I guess since we're at that time, we in it like we usually do. Till next time, Neil. Peace.
2: That's the place where I trace my bloodline. And it's there I read on a hillside gravestone. You will never leave Harlem. Well, my granddad's dad walked down Catherines mountain And he asked Tilly Hilton to be his bride Said, won't you walk with me Out of the mouth of this holler But we'll never leave a heart alive Where the sun comes up About 10 in the morning and the sun goes down About 3 in the day and you fill your cup With whatever bitter brew you're drinking Harlan Cole Sent the money back to Granny But it never left Harlan alive Where the sun Comes up About Ten in the morning And the sun goes down About three In the day And you fill your cup with whatever bitter brew you're drinking And you spend your life just thinking of how to get away And the sun comes up About ten in the morning And the sun goes down About three in the day And you fill your cup With whatever bitter you're drinking and spend your life digging coal from the bottom of your grave In the deep dark hills of eastern Kentucky That's the place where I trace my bloodline And it's there I read on the hillside gravestone You will never leave heart-